Well, a, uh, a couple months ago, I got a new computer. It's an Apple computer, um, and it's, uh, it's actually called a MacBook. It's part of this new line of computers that Apple's put out recently, their new line of MacBooks. And uh, as I was in the process of doing a little research, thinking about which computer was going to be right for me, which one would suit my needs, I was introduced to some new terminology. Uh, it's, it's a way almost of identifying somebody, in fact. And the term is Mac guy. And it's used in this way. Oh, yeah, Blake Simonson, yeah, he's a Mac guy. Uh, and Apple, of course, has picked up on this. They've created a whole marketing way of, uh, about owning a Macintosh computer. There's this identity that goes with it. And at one point, uh, Apple computers were associated with people in the graphic design industry. That was mainly where it was. So it's kind of kept that little creative flavor. And you've actually probably seen these commercials on TV. Uh, there's one uh, where there's a, a young, cool, fun, creative guy who, uh, who is the Mac computer. And then there's another guy, this middle-aged, dry guy wearing just the suit, very plain. Uh, and then, so the commercial begins, the Mac says, hello, I'm a Mac. I'm into doing fun stuff like movies, music, podcasts, fun stuff like that. Then the PC guy says, and I'm a PC, I also do fun stuff like spreadsheets, timesheets, and pie charts. And the PC guy actually goes on to explain how you could capture a family vacation in the form of a pie chart. Well, obviously, this is a blatant example of trying to sell a product by selling an image. And clearly with me, it worked because I'm now a Mac owner. But this, this associating our image or associating our identity with a product or with something that we own is not anything new, probably for any of us, certainly not as Americans. We do this all the time. And it may not be a product that you own. Maybe for you it's an achievement. Maybe it's how well liked you are at school, how well respected you are at the office, how well you can do your job. Maybe you're identified by your intelligence Maybe your good looks, maybe your sense of humor. And in reality, probably for all of us, it's some combination of those things that we would seek to say, that's who I am. That's my identity. But what Paul says in this passage here is that our identity is not found in those things, but it's found in one person. Our identity is found in Jesus Christ. And so your most fundamental identity your most fundamental identity, the most important thing about you is that you are a member of the new humanity in the body of Jesus Christ that is the church. This defines all your relationships. This identity transcends all other ways that we would seek our identity. It goes beyond race. It goes beyond nationality. It goes beyond financial status, political party, and even gender, as Paul says in Galatians 3. That's how significant our being part of the new humanity is that it defines all everything about us. It changes our fundamental identity. And that identity is a corporate one. You could say that we as a people, as a body, have this identity of the new humanity. We share in that. Well, I want to look at three particular points here from this passage this morning. One, the old humanity, or we could really call it the divided humanity that Paul speaks of. Two, how we become the new humanity. 
And three, what it means to be the new humanity. We'll look at a couple implications of that. First, what or who is the old humanity? What do we mean by that? Well, Paul is here writing to Gentile believers. And all that means, if you're unfamiliar with that term, is that they're non-Jews. If you're not a Jew, then you are a Gentile. And Paul jumps in here wanting to remind the Gentiles of who they were before they became Christians. That's his point. He calls them in verse 11, if you look back there, to remember their former identity. Remember who you once were. So he's taking their former identity, who they once were, and he's then going to compare it with who they are now in Christ to show the radical difference between these two. He does this by reminding them of their old standing and really these privileges that they didn't have. Look at verse 12 there. He lists five privileges that the Jews had that the Gentiles did not. It says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, that's a pretty significant list of disadvantages if we really take a look at it. There's being separated from the promise of the Messiah, strangers to the covenant outside the community of Israel. And then you see those last two are very significant. Those are kind of the climax of that list that the Gentiles had no hope and that they were without God in the world. And it's not that the Gentiles were lacking hope as you and I may lack hope from time to time, that it's kind of an internal subjective sense of hope, but they literally had no hope. The promise of a redeemer was for the Jews. And so for the Gentiles, that was not something they could claim. They were literally without hope and without God. Now, because of these differences, you can imagine that the division between Jews and Gentiles was a pretty serious one. And you can see already that this stretches to every area of life. There's the obvious religious divide. But then there was also a social divide, a political divide, and just a general cultural divide, too. And sometimes even these differences would result in physical violence and even wars. And you can see from either side why this would be the case. You can see why there would be some real tension here. From the perspective of the Jews, they're the chosen people of God. They have the Old Testament law, which is fencing them off from the Gentiles. Gentiles were considered unclean by the Jews. There was no intermarriage that was permissible. And at its worst... The Jews even referred to Gentiles as dogs at some times. There was something almost subhuman by their standards. And so as a result, the Jews carried a real arrogance and self-righteousness toward the Gentiles. And in return, you can imagine that the Gentiles were not very fond of the Jews either. As Lincoln points out, they were suspicious of the Jews because of these things. The Gentiles perceived them as being inhospitable, And they saw them being hateful to non-Jews. So this was really not a pretty relationship at all. And to put it in a more vivid analogy that we're unfortunately familiar with is that this is really not unlike the racism and segregation of our own country's history, particularly in the 50s and 60s. There was division. There was hatred. There was self-righteousness. And that sometimes resulted in physical violence. So there's a, a disappointing similarity there. But this analogy breaks down, though, because in the case of the Jews and the Gentiles, there really was a division that went just beyond race. It wasn't just something superficial. Uh, The Gentiles really did lack privileges that the Jews possessed. as We just looked at here. 
But what's important, though, is, is that Paul's point is not just to bring up these old privileges that they were lacking, to bring up their old standing, just to bring up some old painful memories. But what he wants to do is to remind them of it so that they'll see how glorious their new standing is in Christ. And he's just done something similar to that in the first ten verses of Ephesians. He's gone through and said, once you were this, but now because of God, you were this. And really, we can see the benefit of that in our own lives. You may have experienced this before. But think about what it does for your love and gratitude toward Christ when you think about what it is that he's called you out of. What it is that he saved you from. A lot of times, in remembering our former condition, we have an even greater appreciation for the grace that we've been shown. And this is just one reason that I love William Sleeper's hymn, Jesus I Come. This is one actually we just sang last week. This is what he does in that hymn. He says, once I was this and now I'm this. Listen to uh, the first verse. He says, out of my bondage, sorrow and night, Jesus, I come, Jesus, I come into thy freedom, gladness and light. Jesus, I come to thee out of my sickness, into thy health, out of my wanting and into thy wealth, out of my sin and into thyself. Jesus, I come to thee, come to thee. This is what Paul is telling the Gentiles to do here. Remember your past that you may all the more enjoy and appreciate what and even who you are now. And Paul begins this in verse 13 with the phrase, but now. And he goes on to show then in the next four verses that these differences that resulted in hostility are no more. They've been done away with here. They've been diffused because now these Gentile Christians and these Jewish Christians are a part of the new humanity. So we'd rightly ask, how is that possible? This is a, a real division, one of the most significant divisions in all of human history. And it's now been done away with here. How, how do they become members of the new humanity? How is that possible? Well, this is where we could give the same two-word answer that Darwin gave a couple weeks ago to what it means to be a Christian. In Christ. Those are the two words. In Christ. We become members of the new humanity by being united to Christ. Look at verse 13 there. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So it's through his blood that we've been united to him. As those who were far off, speaking of the Gentiles here, have now been brought near because of Christ's death on their behalf. They've been united to Christ. And now because of that, they experience every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, as Paul says in Ephesians 1. So we're united to Christ. And then look at what flows from that here. It's peace. And in fact, that's really the major theme of these next five verses here, that Christ is the bringer of real peace. And he even says in verse 14, this may have struck you when we were reading it, that Christ himself is our peace. And that's kind of an odd way of saying it. As one commentator says, peace is a person. And that's, that, that's not the way we talk usually. That's confusing language. But Paul goes on to explain what it means that Christ himself accomplishes reconciliation in his own person. And there are a couple of ways that he talks about this peace here. Uh, one is peace in relationships with each other. 
And he's speaking here primarily of that divide between Jews and Gentiles. Uh, But we can certainly apply this to our own relationships. We could say it's peace on a horizontal level, on a person to person basis. And then secondly, peace with God, which he talks about in verses 16 through 18, or peace on a vertical level. But what's interesting, though, is that the emphasis is on the former. The emphasis is on peace with each other that is established by Christ. And that's not to downplay the importance of peace with God. But that's pretty interesting, though, that Paul's emphasis here is on the peace that is accomplished between and among the people rather than between the people and God, first and foremost. Well, he mentions there in verse 14, uh, another interesting phrase, the dividing wall of hostility. What's that all about right there? What is he speaking of? Well, he's speaking about that conflict between Jews and Gentiles, that hostility that was there. So we should probably understand that to mean the law of Moses from the Old Testament. That that is what was separating the Jews and the Gentiles. If you remember that list from the beginning, those five things, the law is what fenced Jews off from non-Jews. The law is what told them that the Gentiles were unclean. The law is what prevented them from intermarrying. The law is what kept them from worshiping together because they were would be, of course, worshiping other gods. So the law was the dividing wall of hostility. Now, about 45 years ago, another wall was built. This is a wall separating communist East Germany from West Germany. Of course, you all remember this This is the Berlin Wall. And this wall stood for about 28 years and it divided the city. But as we all know, it represented something much greater than that, that it was really this. It was symbolic of the divide between democracy and communism. And it kind of it represented communism generally. Well, November 9th, 1989, it was announced that this border between the cities was going to be open for free crossing. And then, of course, what ensued after that was uh, was a tremendous celebration. I remember watching this on the evening news and you, you could see Germans actually standing on the wall, celebrating, dancing. Some began tearing it down. And this celebration lasted for a few weeks until this wall was completely torn down. So this was something, obviously, for the German people to celebrate. Jesus Christ broke down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. Now, that for us is something that we, too, should celebrate. He did this by abolishing the law, or it could even be translated that he nullified the law. Another commentator says Christ, by his death, made the law of no effect. So by his faithful obedience and his death on the cross, he conquered the law. And then what results from this is what verse 15 says One new man in the place of two, so making peace. So a whole new humanity comes forth here. And this is so radical what happens here that we can actually say that it's a new creation even. And it's important to realize here what the new humanity is not. Paul's not saying, well, he 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 died here. He uh, he was faithful, uh, faithfully obedient. He conquered the law. And then so the Gentiles just come in and become part of the Jews. That's not what he's saying. Neither is he saying, well, let's just take the good elements of the Gentiles and the good elements of the Jews. We'll put them together and we've got this new humanity. That's not what he's saying either. 
He's saying that the Jews and the Gentiles are made into one radically new humanity in Christ. There's one new person, a completely new people here. This is a fundamental change in identity. And here's what this means for us. If you are in Christ today, then you too are a part of this new humanity. You're a part of this new creation. You are a part of this new people. And you yourself have had a fundamental change in identity also. In the same way, you're a part of this peace that he's speaking of. So think about that. Think about the implications that this peace would have in our relationships here. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, we're familiar with this. Jesus says one of the hallmarks of life in the kingdom is to be peacemakers. That's what he calls us to do. We seek to reconcile and attain peace in every area of life. And probably the first area of life that would come to mind is peace in our homes and in our families. That's our immediate thing that we're going to think of. Because we are united to Christ, who is peace himself, we can have real peace in our homes and in our families. That's not something that's just a future hope, but that's a present reality that because we are united to Christ, we can have peace in our homes and in our families. Another place where this peace would show forth is within the church. In fact, in our membership vows, we actually promise to do that. We promise to promote the peace and the purity of the church. I want you to think about this. In bringing the Jews and the Gentiles together in the way that Christ did, what he was doing was breaking down one of the fundamental divisions of human history. This was one of the significant divisions that, is, that has been around for all ages. So in, in doing that, he broke down that barrier. If there was peace between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, then how can we not also display that peace that Christ accomplishes? We have nothing even close to that with, uh, in our body today. There's nothing close to that division. Now, of course, there are all kinds of directions we could take this to apply it and think through it, but I'm just going to mention one. Does the way in which you speak about fellow members of the new humanity, particularly even those here in our own church, does that reflect and exhibit the reality of the peace that Christ has accomplished? The way in which we speak about each other is bound up in this theme of peace. And Paul, Paul even works that out in Ephesians 4. That's one of the implications is that it has everything to do with the way we speak about each other. So I think that a healthy question for us to ask about all of our conversations is that are we seeking to promote peace within the body by what it is that we're saying to one another? I think that could go a long way. So we as members of the new humanity and of the body of Christ have the obligation to seek peace in all spheres of life. And the great hope that we have as part of this new humanity is that Christ will accomplish this purpose. He will have a peaceful kingdom. That's what he's working towards. So peace in relationships is a future hope, but it's also a present reality, too. There is a sense in which Christ will accomplish this peace right now. And the gospel itself is even called the gospel of peace in Ephesians 6. This is what Christ does. He brings peace. So we, in return, must be pursuing Christ, that he would bring this peace about in our own lives, in our families, in our workplaces, and even in our church, too. 
Well, Paul then moves on to talk about that vertical aspect of peace, the peace that we have with God. He says in verse 16 that Christ reconciles both, meaning Jews and Gentiles there, to God in one body. So this old division of the two groups is done away with. We're united into one body, which is the church. And as this one body of which we are all now a part, we are we now come into the presence of God. So Christ, through his death on the cross, killed the hostility that existed between man and God. Now, this hostility we could trace all the way back to the fall in the Garden of Eden. But that's what sin does. Sin puts us in a hostile relationship with God. There's genuine, genuine hostility and animosity there. And even as Paul says in Romans 5, that, that we're enemies with God. This, this hostility is what Christ has killed. And now while Paul discusses this peace with God after he's mentioned peace with each other, it's still the case that peace with God is necessary for us to have peace with each other. That we must be made right with God before we can be made right with each other. But in both cases, though, peace is possible because of one person and only because of one person. That person is Jesus Christ. Another quick thing we should notice is that the Jews needed to uh, to be reconciled to God also. You know, he lists these privileges that they have at the beginning, but they also needed a redeemer. They also needed Christ. So they also had to put their faith in Christ, just as the Gentiles did. But here's the point of all this talk about peace in every way, whether it's animosity between people groups or whether it's enmity between God and man. Christ is the one who will bring peace. Christ is the only one who will bring peace. He kills the hostility is what the scripture says. He kills it. That's a strong word. He kills the hostility that existed. And then look at what Paul says in verse 18. He says, for through him, speaking of Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the father. So not only are we no longer at odds with God, no longer is there a hostility there. We actually become sons and daughters of him. God is here called the father. So we're part of the family of God in that sense. As the new humanity, we are now brought into the presence of the father by the Lord Jesus Christ. That right there is how we become the new humanity. And now we've already mentioned one implication of what it means to be the new humanity Uh, Mainly that being peace in relationships. But I want to just mention one more this morning, one more feature of life as the new humanity. And that feature is community. We as the church are a community. It's found in verse 19 there. If you look back, this, this is the beginning of Paul's conclusion. He says to these same Gentile Christians who were once far off, once divided, that they are no longer strangers and aliens but our fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So community should characterize the new humanity. That should be a hallmark feature of us. That's what we are. We're members of the same household. And let me quickly point out a couple things about this community. One, it's a diverse community. Okay. One thing that's obvious from this passage that we've been looking at is that there's real unity. We've seen that pretty clearly in Christ. The old divisions of humanity are done away with. They're destroyed. We're made into one new man. Uh, Later on, even in uh, chapter four, Paul says there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope 
that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. So there's genuine unity here. We, we see that. But there's diversity here, too. There are going to be differences within the body of Christ. And in fact, unity of diverse people is a characteristic of the church. That we as a new humanity will and should look different from each other. And these differences extend beyond just race and ethnicity, although they're included. These are differences also in financial status. There are differences in political party. There are differences in all kinds of opinion. But that's really what biblical community is. That's what we see here. God designed it to be that way. And really, there's a significance that goes beyond uh, what we at first think. By displaying this unity and diversity, we're mirroring God himself. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, he is the triune God. God is Trinity. We believe that we worship one God in three persons. So even God himself, we could say, is community. Have you ever thought of that before? That God is Trinity is community. Now, we don't, again, we don't talk that way. But the diversity then of our community is really showing forth the image of God. So there's genuine unity and genuine diversity. And that is something to rejoice in. Secondly, community means being committed to one another. We are bound to one another in the body of Christ. And so we're obligated to care for that body, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Listen to this quote from Peter Lightheart. He has a great comment on what it means to be committed to one another in the church. The church is not a conglomeration of atom-like individuals, but a body in which each member is gifted with a unique dignity, purpose, and function. In the church, the less honorable members receive greater care and honor. The church is called to be a community in which each member uses his or her particular gift for the building up of the whole body. Each member is to serve the common good. The church is a community dominated in a word by love. And we confess something similar to this this morning in, the, in question 55 of the Heidelberg. We said each member should consider it a duty to use these gifts readily and cheerfully for the service and enrichment of other members. Now, a lot of times when I start thinking and talking about community, I start having these idealistic kind of romantic notions of it that, man, community is just so great. Everyone's happy. There's no tension in relationships. Everybody gets along. No awkwardness. No one has to try to be friends. No one has to work at relationships at all. And it's great because everyone likes what I like. Everyone reads what I read. Everyone thinks the way I do. So I'm thinking community is great as long as it's a community of people just like me. Well, in reality, in reality, biblical community is both much greater and also much messier than that. Listen to this quote from The Edge. This is the lead guitarist from U2. He's got a great summary here of what true biblical community looks like. He says, There is that community sense that I would associate with the Christian ideal of looking after your neighbor. But it isn't always pretty. In fact, it's often very rough. 
Like, do you care enough about someone to risk confronting them with the truth if it's going to hurt them? That's love in action, real commitment to one another, real community. And it has nothing to do with being nice to everyone at all times. So in some ways, rather than being a once a week concept, it's sort of the way we try and live here. Isn't that helpful? It's those types of relationships that characterize real biblical community. There's genuine love and there's genuine concern for one another. But that genuine love and concern for one another is such that it forces us. It obligates us to speak truth into one another's lives, even when that immediate result of that is probably not going to be very nice. There could be times where people are going to be upset with you, but that is what true community is. That's what we're obligated to do. That's real love. That's what being committed to each other really looks like. It's messier than we would think, probably messier than we would prefer in a lot of ways, but it's the way God designed it to be. And a final quick suggestion here about how this commitment to one another could play out in a real practical way. That's in the area of hospitality. We should be having each other into one another's homes for dinner. We should be sharing meals together. We should be getting to know each other. We should be sharing needs with one another. That should characterize our body. That's what it means to be the new humanity. That's what it means to be the church. Understanding that we are this new humanity really should change the way we view the church and our commitment to her. The church is not a social club. The church is not something that you go to just because we live in Texas and when you live in Texas, you're supposed to go to church. The church is the new humanity created in Christ Jesus by Christ Jesus. This is where your identity lies. And with that new identity comes a new commitment to one another. Comes with a new commitment to fellow members of the new humanity. We are one body. Well, if you're here this morning exploring the claims of Christianity, you're not quite sure what to think of all this. I'll tell you, here's one claim that you can hold on to. Genuine community and real life made new is found only in Christ. Only in Christ will you be made part of this new humanity. So I'd encourage you, even this morning, to believe and be made new. To trust and rest in the promises of the gospel, which is the gospel of peace. I encourage you to even do that this morning. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, that you have made us a new humanity, that we are a new creation in you, that all possible divisions that we could imagine that could come between us have been done away with, and that our fundamental identity is that we are members of your body. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to reflect that to a greater degree, that we would be characterized by peace, and by hospitality, by community. Lord, we pray that by your grace and by your spirit, it would be a place that is even attractive uh, to those that are outside of your body because of the love uh, that we have for one another. Lord, we pray that you'd bring that about in us. We thank you uh, that it is your pleasure to do that. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.